0: Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program, where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Dr. Faith Harper. Faith is a licensed professional counselor and a board supervisor. She's a certified sexologist, a certified clinical hypnotherapist, and a certified applied clinical nutritionist in private practice in San Antonio, Texas. She's the author of several books, including This Is Your Brain on Anxiety, What Happens and What Helps, and Unfuck Your Brain, Using Science to Get Over Anxiety, Depression, Anger, Freakouts, and Triggers. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
1: Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Can you talk to me a little bit about your background, your work, and how you got into it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, I've always worked in mental health. I hadn't figured out a way to get people to um, pay me to sit around and eat cookies all day, and that's the only other thing that I'm good at. Um, and I had started as a case manager in the field. Um, I really liked doing community mental health work, working with people who had substance use issues and usually mental health issues as well. Decided one of these days it'd be really cool to make more than $40,000 a year. So I went back to school with really that my only intent, like if I get a license, maybe I can make like 45 and just really be killing it, which is, you know, pay (laughs) skill is very low in mental health ended up really loving school and was sort of cornered by amazing uh, professors into applying for a doctoral program and accidentally got in and somehow managed to finish. But um, I, I just found that I really loved academia and science and research and statistics, which, I mean, I mean these are horrible, horrible things to say in my out loud voice. Um, but I really liked bringing that back into mental health treatment of putting, you know, the core components of how the brain and body function and helping people With their journeys based on what we really know about science and what's bullshit science and what's real science. And then because I did so much work around trauma, I got more and more interested in how other things impacted people's experience of trauma, which is where, you know, getting a postdoc in sexology came from and applied clinical nutrition and how can I help people with trauma recovery where it's impacting other areas of their lives.
0: Okay, I'm gonna come back. There's a couple questions that I'm going to come back to. But the first thing I want to go into is where does anxiety originate from and why do we experience it?
1: That's such a good question. I mean, and it's one of those buzzwords we talk about it all the time. And for people who really struggle with anxiety, it's very frustrating, you know, when somebody says they're, you know, anxious because they can't find their keys, you know, and for people who have full-blown panic attacks and live with this this enhanced state all the time sort of that overusage is frustrating. Um because some everybody gets anxious, but people who really really struggle with anxiety basically have a turned on, revved up stress thermostat. Uh for lack of a better term, is that their their bodies are always sort of overprepared in terms of cortisol production and all these things going on to fight back. I say that the anxiety is actually kind of a good sign that your your body is still you know, going along and really trying to protect you and fight for you. The problem is anxiety tends to be um, overprotective and it's not for appropriate scenarios. You don't have to have a panic attack because you're in the middle of target. Um, It's, you know, you don't need to be running away because there's no dinosaurs chasing you. And so learning to decouple that signal again so whatever's going on anxiety wise whether it be social anxiety or you know fear of heights or fear of public speaking is your body's way of being protective doesn't understand that you're actually safe and so a lot of the work that we do in therapy there is to sort of uncouple that response again to make anxiety more more manageable
0: what are some of the strategies that you would use with a client to uncouple that
1: is um, a lot of stuff can be helpful in terms of of actually having to, we say, behave your way into new thinking, uh, is to practice doing things on a lower level that would typically be anxiety provoking, and so the body can learn that bad things aren't going to happen, and to learn good grounding skills and ways to manage that response. We say that the the middle part of the brain, the emotional part of the brain, is always in charge, but our prefrontal cortex can negotiate. And so we are taking this information, we can go, it's actually, it's okay right now. This isn't a reason to be anxious, even though I had really bad experiences in eighth grade. That's not where I am right now is a different situation. Um, and that's another place like hypnotherapy and stuff comes in because it's so calming and relaxing to the whole body. And we can get those messages in a little bit deeper. Um, a lot of times people do need medications to help out at first, and there's nothing wrong with that, but anyone who's on anxiety medications can tell you it's 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 difficult to have to be on that and rely on that for the rest of your life. And a lot of times we can work on the the brain's reaction to stressful events so you're not having to take an anti-anxilytic all the time just to get through the day.
0: Can you break down each you said four different things? Can you break down each of them a little deeper?
1: Oh wow! Now I'm gonna to have to remember what I said. Cool.
0: Um. <laughs> I wrote notes. I missed the first one. The second one was grounding exercise, and you talked uh, the fourth one, is hypnotherapy. The third one was something response. My can't quite read my handwriting. I can't remember the first one.
1: Um, I I think it was uh, about behavioral activation. I think maybe. Um, so, and I'm getting I'm getting overly academic care. I apologize for that. It's okay. Uh, you know, we're, we're trying to behave our ways into new thinking and new emotional responses. So knowing that and um, with m- like military vets who have, you know, very severe trauma reactions, it's prolonged exposure, like actually getting yourself into little bits of the event that's anxiety provoking, realizing, oh, okay, cool. Didn't die. See brain, calm down. We're not going to die. It's all good. And baby stepping our way into these new thinking patterns I say, you know a habit is just resistance to change right like every habit that we have is just because that's easier than doing something else and baby stepping and coming up with and sometimes this is super individual you know everybody has different things that are anxiety provoking for them so working specifically okay so your issue is speaking in public for example and maybe actually what are some skills and things that would help you feel more confident in that process, practice speaking by doing it with your therapist, uh, practice doing it with friends, realizing I'm going to be okay, and, you know, maybe stepping up into the full event uh, type situation. Grounding skills are just about being in your body in the moment. Um, human beings are so good at leaving their bodies and being anywhere but inside their bodies. Um, and so when we talk about like trauma responses for example we're literally reliving our trauma versus being in the present moment when we're feeling anxious that's the first thing that goes is we're just trying to escape that experience because all of our stress hormones are pumping everything that's getting us into fight flight freeze mode going on and so we get out of the present moment Um, a lot of people that you've worked with probably say like I was like looking at myself from across the room I was really not there at all at that point and grounding is just Really being back in the present moment. And that may mean dumb things like list all your favorite TV shows. What colors do you see on the wall? The pen you're holding in your hand. What does it feel like? And really connecting yourself back to what's going on in that literal moment rather than all the anticipatory distress. What if I fall down? What if my pants fall off? Um, Or all the past stuff going on. This happened 20 years ago and it's still affecting my everyday life. And it's hard to do that if you're in the present moment. Does that answer the question?
0: Uh, it d- does answer the question, but I'm wondering if you can go into a few more different exercises. You said basically noting what's happening in the environment as one.
1: Yeah. Um, so a lot of times I will do things. Um, I'll do like, you know, very physical grounding. Um, sometimes it can be helpful for people to like run water over their wrists. Um, some people do really well, like holding an ice cube or something that can really, you know, shock the system. That can really be a benefit for people who've had a history of, of self harm behaviors, because it sort of gives that same boost to the brain without actually hurting yourself. Um, I'll have people just do lists out loud, naming things to me. Um, I love weighted blankets. Um, Essential oils can be of benefit. I mean, really, all we're doing with essential oils is Connecting a um, a present moment there a lot of people come into my office I have a big weighted blanket and I have different oils and they'll use that to sort of ground themselves Disconnect from everything that was going on before they got there So they're in ready to do their work, but they're really present in their bodies at the same time
0: Awesome, the next one was a particular type of response
1: Oh, talking about the, the emotional response of the, of the brain in an, in an anxious moment.
0: I think I have management response.
1: Oh, okay. Um, so the stress management response?
0: Yep, that's it. That's the word uh, I missed.
1: <laughs> okay. So, you know, um, and of course we could be making this up and somebody listening to this is going to be like, that's not what she said, but we're going to go with stress management response. You know, I say stress is a need of resources, right? That is our body saying, hey, we need resources to deal with this issue. This is beyond sort of our general homeostasis. Distress means we are lacking in resources. We don't have enough to manage the response. Um, A lot of what we know about anxiety and depression really coming a lot from the human stress response is that, um, that it's really about our perception of stress and that changes our reaction to it and how anxiety provoking it is as if we see our stress response as being something of benefit, like, hey, you know, this is getting my blood pumping, let's go. Athletes do this all the time. They get themselves revved up and then they're in the zone, you know, and they win the fucking game and when we see the stress response as that, rather something to be fearful, it It's far less likely to, you know, go off the tracks into a full blown panic attack. And all the research about stress being bad for you is really about the perception of stress, which is super interesting to me. When we perceive it as being bad for us, it is. If we perceive it as something that can help us and give us energy and, you know, give us more strength and help us deal with the situation, it does that. So it's really about how we negotiate with our body's stress response. And that's the amazing thing about having a prefrontal cortex gets us into a lot of trouble, but it also lets us inform our responses with more thought.
0: Two things. One, can you give a practical example of that? And then second, can you talk a little bit about how the prefrontal cortex functions uh, as a part of our mind?
1: Sure. An example of stress response?
0: Yeah, like a uh, positive and negative examples of stress, like a practical example.
1: Okay, cool. Um, so one of the interesting things is they did some longitudinal studies of people who had a lot of stress versus, you know, they, it was those studies where they look at like, you know, hundreds or thousands of people and people who had a lot of stress and people who didn't and who died young because of it. And did people who have a lot of stress die younger? Yes. But there was an interesting subset. It was the people who died younger who the people who thought the stress was bad for them versus the people who were like, hey, this is just fucking life. Life is stressful. I can use this to be of benefit or not. Um, going back like to the athlete idea, if you're anxious and nervous about the game you are going to go out and fumble the ball and if you're like hey yeah i'm pumped you know my cortisol is going so like my pupils are dilated and i'm really focused and my heart's pumping so i've got really good you know oxygenated blood running through my and like i'm ready to nail the shit those are not the people that fumble the ball so we see it literally um athletes every day and how they look at their stress response of being a benefit and we see it literally in whether or not it kills people or not we all have stress. I don't know anybody who's excused from that part of the human condition. Um, anxiety is when it's that overproduction of that response, and the the not having the things to cope with that response, rather than going, "Okay, this is what's going on. This is how I deal with it. This is all good. It is what it is."
0: Now, hypnotherapy, break that down for us.
1: Yeah. Um, so hypnotherapy, and people are like, you know, if you saw the movie Get Out. I have. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so when that came out, people were like, Oh my God, do you do that? My, husband. <laughs> my husband's looking at me like, can you do that? No, not how it works. Like, I,
0: I did it I me. did it last night.
1: <laughs> yeah. By the way, that's not your brain anymore. Yeah. Um, so hypnotherapy is actually, you know, really science-based. And there, you know, there is a lot of, you see the stage hypnosis, and I don't ever make anyone quack like a duck or bark like a dog or anything. Um, Yet, the day's not over. Um, (laughs) But going back into the research of how the body really works is we have, so Candace Pert to back up a little bit. She was the person who discovered the opioid receptor gene in the brain. Hardcore scientist. She did that as an undergrad. Bitch was smart. Um, later on, as she got a little older, and sort of the running joke is the scientists that the older that we get, sort of the more woo woo we get. Was really interested in and in where. Emotions and stuff are in the brain and we we know that we store emotions in the middle part of the brain but she found the molecules of emotions literally throughout the body wrote an amazing book about it and That also means that the subconscious mind is throughout the body that we have all of these receptors attached to cells throughout the body that are informing our thought process. That's why people have really strong gut reactions. I tell people to listen to their guts all the time. 95% of our serotonin isn't our guts. Um, and so hypnotherapy actually helps turn down that dialogue a little bit, all that prefrontal cortex chatter and all that paying attention to everything going on in the environment and gets the mind and body reconnected and settled down so then work that you're doing around anxiety for example or around past traumas or whatever it is kind of gets in at a different level I found if if you're calmer and you're really focused in then that stuff sticks better and people tend to have a better response with actually using the skills and being able to manage their responses because they were in hypnotherapy when we put all of those ideas and suggestions and management tricks into it
0: what are some other strategies that people can use to to slow themselves down potentially to
1: slow themselves down when they're anxious
0: yeah
1: one of the big things that i have found and this is really it's simple to explain but difficult to do is to not go into that uncomfortable emotion labeling it as bad a lot of times when people start feeling anxious at least i do like god god fuck, what the hell? I, I don't have time for this shit. What am I doing? This is not acceptable right now. This is not okay. You need to get your shit together. You know, and, and we have so much negative self-talk about negative emotions, whether it be anxiety, whether it be anger, whether it be jealousy, anything that we've labeled as negative culturally, we start labeling and not liking in ourselves. And I tell people, first of all, emotions are just information from the body. They're not good or bad or right or wrong. The body's saying, excuse me, pay attention to this. I'm anxious right now because something provoked my fight, flight, freeze response, and I'm trying to tell you that we might be in danger, and you're being very ungrateful, and I'm really trying to help you. Um, so one of the things that I found most benefit is to just approach that with neutrality, curiosity. So when you're feeling an emotion that you've typically labeled as bad, like anxiety, going, oh, interesting, super anxious all of a sudden. I wonder where that came from. I wonder what is there? Is there something going on like in this environment that I'm needing to be paying attention to? Oh, you know what it was? I smelled that cologne uh, of the guy that, you know, beat me up 10 years ago. Somebody walking by was wearing that same cologne. So this isn't, you know, that was a really strong trigger for me, but I don't actually have to be anxious. And when we approach it with neutrality, it dissipates a lot faster. One thing we know from stroke research is emotions are only meant to last about 90 seconds. That it's meant to be information from the body, hey, by the way, I stored this really strong emotional response to this very powerful memory so I can protect you in the future. That's what the brain's doing. And so we have this response. And if we go, oh, okay, so that's what I'm feeling right now. Curious. I wonder where that came from. Is there something I need to pay attention to? Do I need to be listening to my gut here? Do I need to get the fuck out? Or is this just, you know, bullshit? And when we do that, when we just sit with the emotion, it dissipates, it's not meant to last for days, weeks, months, years on end. That's when it becomes a mood, when we start kind of getting into a groove of holding on to that emotion, worrying it to guess, Or we fight it so hard that it's like whack a mole. You know, we're trying to hit it down rather than just going, "Okay, curious, what's that about?" And so it pops up somewhere else. And when we have problems with it in the long term, it's because we're we don't have a relationship with it when it comes up in the present moment.
0: Uh, And this is great for men. um, We're so guilty of this. (laughs) Well, and
1: yeah, and men are so fucked culturally in terms of emotional content you know I tell and people are always surprised they they presume that it's mostly women that go to therapy so most of my clients are women or you know or gay men or whatever and I'm like nope cisgender heterosexual men who are just tired of bullshit and they're the ones and they may be in partners and they're the ones dragging their partners into therapy we have fucked over men by not letting them have emotional lives in this country men are allowed anger that's an appropriate emotion but Um, men are not supposed to cry. They're not supposed to be scared. They're not supposed to be vulnerable, all these other things. And so that creates a lot of problems. So you have those feelings come up and you squash them down. They're not appropriate. They get replaced maybe with anger. And a lot of the toxic, dumb things that men do that not only hurt people around them, but hurt them come from this cultural message that you shouldn't feel your shit.
0: Yeah, I mean, for a long time, I found that I thought I had to do everything on my own when I was stressed, I would, couldn't ask for help. And I think it was acceptable for me to ask for help. That was not, I not only pick up that message, but I felt like I got that vibe from the people around me. I would compartmentalize things. I would like, uh, suppress things because I, I just didn't think I could express them. And it really fucked me up bad. And it took me a long time, um, till I was able to get to the point where I would like have a thought and I could feel that. So I'd start to get activated and then I would feel that emotion and I could connect it in my body and feel where I felt it. Or even just like before I even became aware of the thought, just connect the emotion where I felt it in the body. And it was such a strange experience and it was really hard to sit with. And I found even with my partner at the time, I remember telling her as we were getting ready to break up that I'm I'm feeling some anxiety. And uh, after something she said, and she goes, oh, don't feel anxiety. And I said, you don't need to take ownership of it. I'm just." If I don't talk about it, then I'll suppress it, and yeah. and what I was trying to do was connect with her, right? And that was part of what was missing. Is like, let me tell you how I'm feeling, but her instinctive response was smash that thing right back down, <laughs> yeah. and, and that's true about so much of. I found that so so frequently in in my emotional interactions with both men and with women, and um, I don't know. I'm, I feel like this is along the lines of what you're talking about. Anna, do you have thoughts, or does this bring oh, absolutely.
1: Out? I mean, and I see that all the time. And I and I'll have people come in who are, um, you know, female partners of of you know a man, and just saying, I've never seen him do this before. We don't have these discussions at home, and I cut and I can <laughs> see the side eye of like, well, he's not like you've let me every time I've tried because and. And that's something that, you know, women have been conditioned to, you know, men are supposed to do all these things. And, you know, women are the caretakers of emotions. So men, you know, expressing some kind of emotional vulnerability feels very uncomfortable for women, too, generally speaking. And there may be women listening to this going, I don't do that. And hopefully not. And if we're thinking about (laughs) it, we don't do it. But it is such a conditioned cultural response that we may catch ourselves doing it without thinking about it. Because that's just how the world works. Yeah. And, and so just, and so a lot of times what I'm doing therapeutically with men is helping them get in touch with that and then learning to contain it and, you know, have these feelings, but not have them be overwhelming and then being able to do that work outside of my office to be able to have those conversations with their partners, you know, with their kids, with their families. I graduated somebody from therapy last week who when he called me, he said, I need therapy, I'm a piece of shit. And we were laughing about it last week, it's not a piece of shit. I mean, obviously amazing human being who, who fucks some things up because we all do. And a lot of it was tied into really bad role models. You know, this is not how men are. And so he kept just swallowing it and swallowing it and swallowing it until he reacted in a way that was damaging to his relationship. And a lot of that was just having to un tether all of those messages and you get to be the kind of man that you want to be and you know what aligns with who you are what is your moral center? who are you are as a person and how do you operate from that place rather than from those other messages
0: oh my goodness i love so much of what you're saying um if, if a guy's in that situation and he probably doesn't even know that that He's been controlled by all these messages um, or he's been so heavily influenced by all these messages. But how does he go from that period where he's like a a fish in water and doesn't realize that he's in water um, to a point where he is aligned with his own values and sort of sense of integrity is a word that I'm going to throw in there.
1: Yeah. Um, And I think, like you said, a lot of it comes from either. You do something that's fairly destructive to yourself, to others, or you become so untethered that you you're you're sort of desperately seeking a way to reconnect. It sounds like that's kind of what your experience was. That you, you realize like I need to be in this, and I need to start just feeling the stuff and sharing it with the people that it's important to me. And of uh, and and I and I I've worked with so many people too who've who said. You know, just even like paying attention to all that stuff inside feels so scary and groundless because we all have that seeking suspicion that we are fundamentally worthless, that everybody else is fundamentally okay, but I'm not. And if I start paying attention to all that shit, I'm going to know for sure what a fuck up I am and that I just shouldn't even be here. And we, so we have a lot of fear around that as well. And that's, that's, you know, true of all genders. Um, And so looking at that stuff, and having the reinforcement of this is just stuff, having thoughts, you know, doing things that were dumb, because you're human, and congratulations, we all are. And how do we learn from that and make different, more interesting mistakes next time? And, you know, and approaching all of this with self-compassion, that this is just part of the human experience. And, you know, kind of Going through and pulling all that stuff up and looking at it, like you said, like I was kind of looking at this for the first time, like dusting off these emotions that I had shelved and going, oh, that's what's going on here. That's what it is. And then I've had a lot of men tell me they realize that other people are just like not on board for this program. For sure. And so that, yeah. And then they're like, I, so, you know, like you said, your partner was like, well, don't feel that because that always works. You know, telling <laughs> someone not to be anxious just cures anxiety so well. Um <laughs> It's brilliant. I just go around saying, don't be anxious. And people are like, oh, my God, <laughs> thank you. Is then dealing with the fact that you can only, you only have control of your own responses. So when you're doing things that are, you're paddling against the flow a little bit in that domain of, of like, I want to be a more emotionally authentic and vulnerable and connected person because that's who I am. And I'm tired of this bullshit, toxic, gendered stuff that we do, you're gonna have people that want you back in that box. And, and so a, a lot of clients that I've worked with, you know, had to the point like, you can't control other people, only your response to them. You have to go to, you know, what, especially when you're unsure about a situation, what is your gut telling you? Like the inside, who you are is telling you is right about this versus all these cultural methods. Like, is this somebody talking over your shoulder into your ear telling you what to do? Or is this the, your true authentic self? Um, and I tell people all the time, especially like it's the crux of a big decision. Five years from now, are you going to be really proud of how you handled this? Or are you going to be really embarrassed by your behavior? You know, who are you fundamentally as a person, the part of you that doesn't change over time? Are you going to look back at this and be like, I did the very best that I could. I fought hard for that relationship. I, I gave it my all. I Tried everything that I could. And so if that didn't work, it wasn't because I didn't try my best versus I really did dickish things because I was scared. And so I lashed out and was hurtful. And that's those that's those kinds of behaviors that we are embarrassed about later. So what will yourself five years from now think about what you're doing right now?
0: I, that's, I mean, that's a great way to, to, it sounds like a great way to approach this. I thought of a couple of things, like back going back to that relationship, that might be useful here for people who are listening because uh, they might be able to see it in their own life. I went back to her afterwards and I said, "We had." so we had broken up before and when we broke up before, I was like totally emotionally shut down. And I know now, or I even knew then, but there was nothing I could do about it. I didn't feel like there was anything I could do about it. It was a consequence of a bunch of traumas. I just like emotionally and physically shut down. And as a man, I just, or just as a human being, um, but I think part of that experience is as a man, is that I just didn't know how to release them. And uh, and so I sort of suppressed them and thought I had to deal with them on my own and blah, 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 blah. But I, so what I did was I started doing a lot of, different types of work that allowed me to free myself up and be way more present, be connected to my emotions, to be connected to my body, be way more vulnerable, allow those emotions. Like I was really trying to live between two lines and I still am being fully present. And when I'm fully present, I become aware that I potentially trigger the people around me or I can activate them um, because I'm just, I'm just being. And when I'm fully vulnerable, those reactions affect me emotionally and it, and it brings up stuff. And so in that circle, I feel really alive, but it can trigger other things. Like uh, it can trigger things like abandonment from when I was younger and, and make mm-hmm. me want to compress or suppress or withdraw. And, and, uh, but it's fucking a scary place to live. But I, yeah. I, I had told her later on that afternoon, I went by her work because she was, well, she had texted me. She wanted me to drop something off and, and, uh, pick her up lunch. And I said, you know, I like, I just wanted to go back to that. And I said, you know, I, when I say something like that, I'm not, because I was so emotionally closed off for so long. And I was like, when I say something like that, when you tell me to suppress it, like that's part of the problem. It's like, it's just going away. I'm just like uh, releasing it. And then she started to say something and then she stopped and I said, what is it? And then she's like, nothing. And then about a minute or two later, she goes, I just didn't want to be responsible for you feeling anxiety. And And so I thought about that afterwards and I was like, there's so many different times in the relationship where I realized that even when I did try to emotionally o- open up, she would shut down. And uh, she would shut down because she felt she would take ownership of the emotion instead of just like acknowledging it as sort of a thing that also allows us to connect, right? And open up new conversation. Do you see where I'm going with this?
1: Yeah, totally. Well, and, I mean, and first of all too, is nobody's responsible for anybody else's emotions. Our emotions are completely our own. And even if somebody does something really shitty to us, we're responsible for our reaction to that. But, you know, and that kind of goes to what you're saying about those messages, you know, especially if men aren't really supposed to have emotional responses and women are the caretakers of emotions, it makes sense then for female partners, you know, who are somebody who's with a man and is, is female to, to think that we have to take, we have to sort of do that emotional heavy lifting for them versus saying like, this is just mine. I'm, I'm anxious right now because I am. And I'm just feeling what I'm feeling, and you know, and a lot of times we feel like we have to emotionally caretake our partners, and and we don't. Um, and, you know, is like for example, I have the sense of humor of a twelve year old boy. I think <laughs> fart jokes are funny. Somebody else, something that I might think is hilarious might be very offensive to somebody else. We have different emotional responses to something, and that's okay. Um, and, and I remember having that conversation. Um with with my with my late husband um backstory is that i was widowed in my 30s and got remarried just a couple years ago but i remember saying something and he's like don't feel that i'm like it's just my feeling it's not good or bad or right (laughs) or wrong and you're not responsible for it it just is it just it is what it is i'm you know naming it claiming it and moving on and he's like i hate being married to a therapist that he stomped out of the room (laughs) (laughs) but just being able to say, this is just what's going on right now. I, I am feeling anxious. And if there's something that somebody else is doing that's having impact on that, we can ask for that, but it's still our responsibility to own our emotion. I feel anxious when, you know, you don't call me back when you told me you were going to, you know, check in before you left work or whatever. And I, because I worry about you and I love you. And I I would love if you remember to do that, you know, put a reminder on your phone or whatever, because I worrying about you makes me feel anxious, you know, and just saying this is my feeling my emotion. And this is what I'd like from you. Or, you know, I'm feeling really scared right now about our relationship. And can we can I just hug you and hold you and be connected right now? Not saying you made me anxious, therefore you need to now make me feel better, saying this is what I'm feeling and you're the person that I really would like to connect to right now in this in this experience. It's the I feel blank when something happened and this is what I'm wanting model versus saying you made me this. You know, you made me feel this, you did this to me.
0: That is awesome. I mean, in in sort of a, in a sad, uh, kind of sad consequence, she actually broke up uh, with me the next day. And I realized that when I came back way more present, um, or I came back present, she started to shut down. And, um, part of the theory was when I was emotionally absent, I was safe. Um, but she felt disconnected and sort of sensed that after a while. And then I came back present and it was scary. So she ran. And, um, and I talked to a buddy about this because I, as I was trying to sort of unpack and process and figure out, like, how can I be a better man so I can be a a better partner, a better friend, a better member of my community, a better coach, a better, like, how do I do, how do I do all these things? And eventually a better husband and father, right? And um, we're having this conversation. He was talking about his own sort of emotional awakening. and and, and I realized a couple of things. I want to go to his emotional awakening in a second. But first, I, I realized that the way that I was expressive, um, after that, during, or during that process of sort of reconnecting with my emotions, I realized like I was that, like that as a young man and that I had a couple experiences that didn't go where, well, where I opened up emotionally and I grew up in like an emotionally, very, fairly emotionally safe home. And I thought that was okay. And, and I went out into the world and, and tried to connect with people and, had some traumatic experiences and I realized that or I learned that it was safer to be emotionally absent and as I talk to other men I find that that's also common I had I a had conversation the other day with a guy in my men's group um, my buddy who I wanted to sort of tell the story he goes you know I went through this spiritual awakening and the first time I had sex with a woman I was fully present she like didn't call me back again. And like, she was just shutting down. It happened the second time. And uh, the second woman I was with the same thing. And the third woman, I could start to feel it, feel her shutting down. So I shut down, started to shut down. And then she started to open back up. And then I started to open back up because but well, she did something a little different, she saw me again. And this, the next time she saw me, she realized like, this is maybe not like the normal guy. She goes, we talked about it. This is not the way men I normally um date in like are are. But it's uncomfortable. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to sit with it. And then they did again and they did again. And, and they started to develop a, what he described as the healthiest relationship of his life. And, it's amazing. Um, they got separated because she had to move overseas for work and maybe we'll rekindle at some point. But yeah, I mean, it's just like, it's just so fascinating to me to understand. Like I took all the blame. Like I can't do this. I can't do that. Like, um, like what is missing? What is like that next layer? And at some point I just came to the realization that actually she was a big participant in this right um and i didn't under, i didn't understand that so i think a lot of men can relate to that
1: well and the minute one person in the system changes that changes the whole system and you know we see it in dysfunctional families all the time too somebody's like you know, trying to like gain sobriety or whatever. And everyone else is like, well, what does that mean? What do do I do if I'm not your enabler anymore? (laughs) You know, and so anytime you start making that that shift, people are can either go, wow, because it's, it's uncomfortable. You've just changed the whole dynamic, even when you're changing it for the good. Everyone's used to the old way of doing things. Everyone's got that that groove again you know that's what a habit is this resistance to change so you were doing that and she's like instead of going wow this is weird and uncomfortable for me i'm not used to this is this a good thing for us and kind of doing her own work in that process she just tried to yank you back into the comfortable dynamic of i'm going to yell at you for not being present but also don't be present <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's funny because that was my instinct i said later on i told her like like i mean i don't blame you i like i'm not upset with you in any way i have nothing but love for you but i i wish you would have sat with the changes a little bit but it's yeah we like i love what you said you can't take another person's you can't take responsibility for another person's emotions and um i think that's an important distinction i want to ask you there's more question about anxiety god i I love this conversation i've talked to so many people about this and it's like god she like she gets it um Okay, so how, how does, and we've talked a little bit about it, but how does anxiety affect our minds and our bodies?
1: Well, we start this, you know, we, we've we talked a lot about stress and the stress response. And a lot of people know more about the cortisol pr- production and the HPA axis. And 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 that really what anxiety is doing is we're pumping up that stress response. There's a really good book, Robert Sapolsky wrote a really good book called, Well, Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Um, and it's about you know literally the stress response and how it can stay turned on and that i mean and that's really what and you know one side of that is that sort of overactivation and constant activation of the stress response and for those of you listening who really struggle with anxiety all the time you're like yes like my fight flight freeze response is just always right there simmering under the surface um it's always an issue um, and then the other side of that, of course, is when your body goes. You know what? I'm done with you and your bullshit. I don't know how to handle this anymore. And so the whole the whole system hypoactivates, and a lot of times that's where depression comes from. We don't have any. We our cortisol de- um, gets depleted. Our adrenals don't work well, and so that's why depression, and anxiety are really two ends of of the same cord. But I say like with stress. Um, In in my in my book, which is a really short like simple explanation of stress and and things to do with it It's like if you had a naked raging toddler in a snowstorm (laughs) holding a fistful of gummy bears and a bloody machete You fucking pay attention to that (laughs) shit that's what anxiety is. It's like, pay attention to me. Your body is doing everything in its power to say, excuse me, something here is not okay. You're not paying attention. I'm going to ramp this up until you pay attention to me. And so what are the big things, like, okay, so being present in the moment, being curious about it, grounding ourselves back in our body, sort of behaving our way through the process, you know, all those little things are saying, I'm paying attention, put down the machete, come on, hand it over. It's okay. You know, you keep the gummy bears, you know, and just having that conversation with our anxiety response really changes the whole dynamic of of how we live in our bodies.
0: You mentioned earlier um, about how emotion is stored in the bodies. Can you expand a little bit on that?
1: Yeah. Well, we know. So one. So first of all, where it's stored in the brain and memories, are stored in different parts of the brain, which is really, really interesting. Like remembering where you put your car keys or remembering your social security number is not the same kind of memory as your emotional memories. So if something has a very strong if um, um, an emotional reaction to us, if something, generally something that really bad happened that we had a very strong negative emotional reaction to, it stores as an episodic autobiographical memory, (EAM) memory. And so then that that emotional response gets triggered because the body's like, okay, fucked up shit happened, so we're gonna remember this and remember everything about this. So if anything like this happens again, we're ready to respond. And so if something happens on the outside and you know, you're know you you're walking through the grocery store or whatever, and all of a sudden you have this strong response and you're like, I don't even know where the fuck that came from, that's because an EAM memory was triggered. One thing that's really interesting about the brain is we have an emotional response before we have a thought. So when we take in um, stimuli, we have an emotional response at about the three quarter second mark, but we don't actually... Um, have a thought about it till the one second mark. So we 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 oftentimes think, okay, well, I saw X, Y, Z, and then I was scared. You were scared first because it was that EAM memory kicked in and said, "Hey, pay attention to this." And then you had the thought. The thought was actually informed by the memory and the emotion, rather than the emotion, the memory being formed by the thought. And so you know, we have that that literal visceral pay attention to this response from the get-go. And so that's actually, you know, sort of the middle part of the the brain and the EAM memories. And then we also know that we have these emotional receptors throughout the body. And one thing you mentioned is like, where in my body am I feeling this? I do a lot of work with somatics and if I can get people to do mindfulness meditation, yoga, qigong, something like that, where you're really being interoceptive to your body, people have a completely different relationship with all of this. Um and cuz yeah, we and that's another part that we leave out, where am I feeling this in my body and how to feel that and to even titrate that, go into it feel a little bit, pull back out before it becomes too much and learn that we can have more control over the experience by pendulating our emotions, titrating our responses, figuring out where it is in the body because like I said, literally 95% of our serotonin is in our gut. Fucking listen to your listen to your gut, you know, and and catching all that. I I tend to feel stuff in my gut. Um, one of my safe places tends to be chest. Like I feel sort of secure, heart center. And so I can focus on that part of my body to calm me down when my gut's churning. And so teaching people to do that, to be in their bodies and connect to all of those experiences settles down all of those molecules of emotions because you're paying attention to it and we're not we, you know, we think of Therapy and emotions is just being head and, you know, neck and below has nothing to do with it. When in reality, it's all connected and everything's activated. The, uh, the vagus nerve, the 10th cranial nerve connects our brain to every major organ, which is why we have these huge responses in our bodies when we have emotional responses. And even down into the fascia of our body, our fascia is piezoelectric. So, you know, collagen is essentially made of crystals. So if somebody who smells like patchouli and is wearing too many bells on their skirts tells you that your body is made of crystals, they're actually kind of right, um, <laughs> that we, we are electrically charged. Like Tesla was right. It is an electric universe. Bodies are electric because You know, our fascia is comprised of collagen, which is piezoelectric because it's crystallized. And so we're activating that stuff all the time with every movement. And so that stuff becomes activated if we're having a strong emotional reaction. And so that movement and that body awareness can help settle us and go like, oh, this is what's going on. I've had so many people so disconnected from their bodies. And a lot of times where we've even had to start with, especially people who had really, you know, uh fucked up abuse histories of just even realizing that they're disconnected was the start. You know, and I think, hey, you know what's going on in your stomach right now? And I get this panic look of I don't know. But hey, you know what? You just for the first time realize you're disconnected from that. So that's okay. Just even realizing that that area is numb for you is a good start. And then learning to kind of go in and titrate in and explore that. And and the term for it is interoception because we have perception, you know, of what we're looking at on the outside. And interoception is literally our own internal workings. And that's why when we talk about like yoga and Qigong and that very mindful movement type practice is beneficial for trauma recovery because that's what it's doing. It's actually teaching us to be in our bodies and to understand our body's responses and have be re-empowered in that process, especially for those of us who had our power taken away in terms of our body's control.
0: This is absolutely awesome. Um, I have a couple questions for you just so if an audience is listening to this and they're not in the medical profession, uh, they, can fo- they can follow. Um, what is a titrate response is the first one.
1: Yeah. Okay. So um, titration means just learning to feel a little bit at a time so it doesn't become overwhelming. So, for those of you, like, you know, like, I don't want to just feel my anxiety because I will literally pass out. So, you can go fuck yourself, Dave. For those of you who are thinking that right now, I, I'm with you. I agree. I don't want you to go into full blown panic mode. But a lot of times we find that titration lets us go in feel a little bit of it, explore it, then pull back out when it becomes too much. So we're learning how to just feel everything going on in our body without it overwhelming us or feeling it all at once So sort of kind of going in, dipping our toe in, exploring a little bit, pulling back until it's a little bit more safe. Um, And and that's all that titration is. And, And pendulation is that movement back and forth between what feels safe and what feels activated and actually doing that within our own bodies.
0: Can you give an example of that?
1: Yeah, so I was talking about how when I become activated or upset, I tend to feel it in my gut, which makes sense. That's why so many people I think have gut problems too. Um, but I tend to feel fairly comfortable heart centered. That's sort of a grounding place in my body. So if I'm feeling really activated, I can kind of reach in interoceptively and just like, oh yeah, I can I can really feel that. But then go back and then refocus my attention on the place that feels safe and comfortable, which for me is, you know, heart center. And actually move back and forth and feel it a little bit and then pull back out and maybe feel a little bit more. And so it doesn't feel overwhelming to have this whole gut churning anxiety response and to feel like in, in control and management of it. And I've had people tell me I don't feel safe anywhere in my body, and I totally get that too especially for, you know, those of us who have, who have been abused in the past, that the body feels it's, you know, like something that's completely out of control. And so they've actually even like created like a little room in their brain that's their safe room that they go into. So they'll actually just go into their body, feel things for a minute, and they kind of go back to the room for a minute. And it's, it's, it's all this sort of internal processing of connecting to the experience, feeling as much of it as you can handle, moving back out, but not just disassociating, really doing the work with it, and a lot of times for the first time in people's lives. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I was at a dinner with a, a friend of mine the other day and he was talking about how he doesn't feel anything. He believed a lot of it tied to, to sort of an upbringing. He grew up in like a very conservative Orthodox uh, community and he left that community as the oldest child. And like he said, it, it wasn't really okay for me to feel anything. Like I had to take care of everybody else. And there's he had a ton of sisters and brothers and, but he's like, I don't really feel anything. And and he's like, I don't know if that's normal or it's just me. I've come to groups like it might just be me. But as we we're having the conversation, I could start to see flickers of emotion, like because uh, something would activate him and see a tiny shift. And I said, What was that? And he he would start to feel it and he'd have a hard time going there. And um, yeah. I think the things that you're saying are so interesting. You used a couple other terms that I also wanted to find for the listeners. When you said you mentioned somatic, uh, so some, can you talk about somatic experiencing or somatic therapy for somebody yeah. who doesn't know what that means?
1: Uh, so, what and and tip and this is you know sort of our fault professionals in the field is that we sometimes over intellectualize things and the body was really sort of taken out of therapy for a really long time, and a lot of people who are really smart um, started realizing that we need to bring the body back into therapy and that's all that somatics is 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 really how do we feel things in our body? If you're anxious, you're feeling it everywhere in your body. It's not just a thought process that you can kind of, well, stop thinking that way. Oh, cool. Thanks, doc. Um, and so like somatic experience comes mostly like from Peter Levine's work. Um, he wrote, you know, Waking the Tiger, um, books like that. And coming from his his own experience and his clinical experience of how people were holding things in their body and realizing that a lot of the release and the re- recovery from those experiences meant releasing all of those stored emotions that the body had held. Um, And the example that I use is, say you're in a terrible car accident, and ambulance comes, scoops you up, drives you to the ER, and you start like violently convulsing, what's going to happen? They're going to give your ass a shot um, to calm you down. But what's really going on is your nervous system is releasing the trauma of the event. And that's something that bodies need to be able to do. Animals do it all the time. If you go look up like, you know, animals shaking, um, somatic stuff on YouTube, for example, you'll find tons of videos of doing it because it's very natural to need to release those really s- strong emotions from the body. And so a lot of work can be releasing them feeling them for the first time and then being intentional about going oh here's my shit coming up that's what it's just doing and letting it actually release rather than holding on to it. I say that PTSD is really an injury of the nervous system more than anything else.
0: Can you can you explain that?
1: Yeah, so trauma is stored in the body and you know we have our emotional responses and our thought patterns and behaviors but what I mean, what it's doing is, I mean, the, the whole body has held on to this this traumatic injury and not learned to be in the present moment and to release it and move on. And so the, the HPA axis gets activated. The 10th cranial nerve gets activated. You know, all the fascia gets tight all the time. And so some of our work has to be literally going back to our body and being aware a heteroseptive. And so we're able to release those experiences.
0: How would you do that with a client, or how have you heard people do that with clients?
1: Um, Well, you know the the uh, so David Emerson's work, his work specifically with yoga as a form of trauma recovery is based heavily, like in Bessel van der Kolk and Peter Levine and all the people that have done somatics of so using movement in this very mindful way to because what's going to happen for all of you who have had this experience. This shit's going to come up anyway. And it's going to happen when you're in line at the movies (laughs) or something. So of doing that kind of mindful movement. So when you're connecting to it, realizing what's going on, and then you have, so it's not like, okay, we're going to invoke you to shake. I'm going to have you sit against the wall, you know, chair position until your legs shake because that's going to somehow make you better. It's not that so much as having the body awareness. So when it comes up, you go, oh, there's my shit hey, mom, thanks for visiting today, you know, whatever your shit is. <laughs> and so you get a chance to be in it, let it release, you know, tight, have a different experience of it. And eventually you don't have as strong reactions anymore. And it may come back up every few years. Hey, mom, thanks for visiting. But you don't have the same relationship with that trauma that you did in the past because it's not held in the nervous system in the same way.
0: Dating coach Chris Loney here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchristman.com, create account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma Live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows, attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. I'm glad you made a distinction earlier about how um, we feel something and then we have a thought. And when I when I, earlier in the podcast, I said, I have a thought and then a feeling. And what I meant by that is like, sometimes I'll be talking about someone will ask me a question and I'll start to talk about something. And as I start talking about something, I'll go into things that I like, I didn't expect to talk about or the conversation. And that's when the, the emotion starts to come up in that, in the example where you said, hi, mom. (laughs) And, And and so, um, and that's when I, like, if somebody asks me about something, I'll be like, I might be suppressing it. And then, uh, Probably a lot less now, but definitely at other periods of my life for sure. <laughs> uh, but I'll start talking about it and then the emotions start to simmer and yeah. um, I start to feel them and uh, that's what I meant by that. But I'm, I'm Yeah,
1: because v- your conversation activated it. Exactly. So it was a conversation yeah. about yeah. something else that activated something deeper and then you're like, oh, mom, hey, cool. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us. <laughs>
0: exactly. Yeah. And I'm glad, I'm, I'm, but I'm very glad you made that distinction and even like clarified right now because- I, I want people who are listening to this to have clarity, but it's awesome. Can you explain what uh, is? Or fascia is? Uh, fascia, sorry, fascia.
1: Yeah, so the fascia is the connective tissue in the body. Um, so for those of you who eat meat, you know, or have eaten meat in the past, or you know, cooked, you know, you've prepared a chicken breast and it has that that thin white stuff that's not fat on it. You know what I'm talking about, right? When you're the um, getting ready. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's actually, it's fascia. It's the connective tissue that holds all of our organs in place. It holds our body together. And and it's interesting. So I have, I have a um, a couple MD friends. One's a surgeon and one is a GP. And when I, I said, so tell me what you, what you know about fascia. Well, you know, the surgeon's like, I have to cut through that shit all the time. That stuff is really strong. It's, you know, makes my life difficult. And my GP friend was like, it exists that's kind of all I know. Um, so it's not even something that we really talk about a lot. It's not something that, um, even doctors learn about a lot in school because unless you're a surgeon, it's not really, you know, part of your everyday life. Now, uh, people, massage therapists, acupuncturists, people who are working with the body doing somatic type work, they all understand fascia, but fascia is everywhere. It's super, super strong. It is Comprised primarily of collagen, and since collagen is is um, is formed of hexagonal crystals, it's piezoelectric. So the activation of the fascia, which is everywhere in our body, so that's not just our HPA axis, that's not just our our veins and stuff, um, means that we're sending these electrical charges. And so that's what the interoceptive work does, is paying attention and connecting to all of those experiences. And and so for people who thought, you know, acupuncture is just woo-woo bullshit science, it turns out that it's not. We were activating fascia with these little tiny needles. And so, and of course, we don't know, and we're just starting to study things like that in the West. We really didn't even know much about acupuncture until, you know, Nixon decided to visit China in the 70s. And we're like, what are they doing with the needles? So it's fairly new um, to Western culture, but, you know, that's 3,000 years of treatment practice, and what it was was fascia activation. And so what they're talking about, so if you like look at acupuncture, like the dew channel, that is the vagus nerve. And if you look at some of these other finer points, you know, in the hands, feet, other places in the body, it's fascia activation. And so it's actually Activating that electrical messages sent through the body, and those messages can send healing energy to, you know, places of pain in the body, which is how acupuncture works and why it's a very efficacious treatment. That even the VA, I, I know VA docs that are now getting trained in using acupuncture, and we're talking like MDs that are now using acupuncture in practice.
0: Yeah, I'm finding that more and more when I talk to academics uh, that. There's a lot more of this embracing of sort of Eastern-Western medicine that's been around for thousands and thousands of years that for a long time in the West, we thought were woo-woo, and uh, we were just like, oh, we give people a pill, and that's how you deal with it, but yeah, I'm I'm getting that more and more. What do you think of rolfine?
1: I don't know a whole lot about it. um, I've not studied it too much, but it's doing the same kind of, of stuff, of- of activating the fascia, doing, you know, like myofascial release. And a lot of those, they have their own systems for doing it, but it's all doing the same work. Well, real something that I haven't experienced myself um, or done a lot of reading on, so I can't speak a lot to it. I have happened to, to train with and know a lot of acupuncturists, so I know acupuncture, acupressure a little bit better. Um, I don't do that either, but I know people that do it. And so a lot of the stuff that I've even read about the electromagnetic body and things like that have actually come from people who were trained in Western medicine and are MDs, but then also went back and studied acupuncture and combined the two. But I've heard people tell me that they love rolfing. thing. Of course, I'm I'm in South Texas, so um, it that stuff is still a little new and weird to us. Um, so there's less of that here, but a lot of people, I am seeing a lot more people using, um, you know, acupuncture neuro and biofeedback, um, it's part of the reason I do a lot of clinical nutrition in my practices because there is so much we can do just to get away from sort of industrialized foods and food systems that can also help these experiences as well as putting the whole body back into treatment.
0: Yeah, I've never tried it either. I just, it's come up multiple times in conversations over the last month and uh, met a couple of practitioners through just being out. and um I was curious, just curious what your thoughts are. You you mentioned neurofeedback. Can you talk about neurofeedback? And then I wanna talk to you a little bit about nutrition.
1: Yeah. So um, neurofeedback is essentially a form of biofeedback. Um, And to unpack that for a second, it's so biofeedback is when you have monitors sort of set up all over your body measuring, you know, your heart rate, how much you're sweating, blood pressure, and you're learning to control those experiences from the inside by getting that literal feedback in the moment of what your body's doing. And neurofeedback is focusing specifically on brainwaves. So we know that certain brain waves are associated with certain, you know, heightened psychological states. Like we know that once you get that firing of that EAM memory saying, hey, you should be anxious right now, your brain's gonna go into anxiety mode. And we have a lot more control over that than we realize. And so neurofeedback is is actually so you're attached and we're watching your brain waves and you're learning to control that you know, not just by watching a screen, but actually usually what they do is you're, you're sort of playing a video game with your brain. So if we know that we're working on better impulse control and we know that, that you know, working here on your alpha brain waves, for example, are going to really help your impulse control, it'll, the, the neurofeedback practitioner will set, this like, is, this is the zone we want you to get in, which we know is going to give you more impulse control. And then when you maintain your brain waves in that zone, the game works. So you're playing Frogger or whatever, but the game doesn't work unless you manage your own brainwaves. And so you learn how to do that. Um, and you know, my son did neurofeedback as a teenager and I remember, kind of going in and we, we had done all kinds of talk therapy and he, like he wasn't even against it. He liked his every therapist we tried, but he wasn't getting anywhere. Um, is when we started the neuro and we go in and he's like, he's got his hand in his head and we're like, Oh my God, we gave him a seizure. We're getting ready to pull everything off. And, and he said, like, no, no, it doesn't hurt. It's pressure. It was the blood flowing to his prefrontal cortex. Like he was actually making that experience happen for himself. And he had so much blood flowing into his prefrontal cortex that he was building all these new connections. And he had this completely different like response that all of his impulse can stuff because he, we we did work in that area, and he was able to then do the talking part too that he wasn't able to do before. Neural feedback is not usually enough in and of itself; the talking part still has to happen. But then he was able to go, "Oh, I know what it is. I know why I've been a shit." And we're like, "Tell us. We've been dying to know." <laughs> you know. And so we were actually then able to do the work because he had a, he was more in tune with what his brain was doing and got some things online that weren't online before.
0: Who do you think is on the forefront of this?
1: Of, of like, neurofeed- yeah, neurofeedback. Yeah, yeah. If
0: somebody wants to try neurofeedback or explore, who where should they go?
1: Well, there are you can you can definitely find people online, you know, and there are associations for people that are certified. I I live in San Antonio, which oddly is a really good place to get neurofeedback because St. Mary's University and UTSA both have neurofeedback clinics. Um, they both teach it and there's really good practitioners here. Um, you happen to be in a place where you also probably have pretty good neurofeedback practitioners, you know, for the, for people who are out in, you know, if you're in bumfuck, Indiana, I don't know. Um, But, like, I I have somebody that I, who runs the program at St. Mary's, who's, who's brilliant, Alan, Alan Novian, if you're in San Antonio, Um, he runs the program at St. Mary's, and he has a private practice here. So I send people to him. He's amazing. I got to study it in in my doctoral program. I didn't do the practicum. I'm not a neurofeedback practitioner, but I studied neurofeedback because I've one of the programs where it's available so I would you know I would search for neurofeedback practitioners in your area see what their level of training is you know are they you know are they certified and not everybody is they may have chosen you know not to for whatever reason but just like anything else you know you can do your research and and find people in your areas but it's you know there's not any kind of like national licensing credentialing guidelines to follow so I would look at where people studied Um, and you know and and what they do with it
0: I I had never been acquainted with this until a few weeks ago I had a conversation with this guy Dr. Alan Hill and he has a a company that does this and it's called Peak Brain Institute and when he started talking about some of the outcomes it blew my mind I I told Mm -hmm. him I was like they should have these outside grocery stores right <laughs> i just like well, and as he broke down he's like like i'm like how many times is somebody going to have like a, an iteration like where their brain and it's like thousands of times i think he called them events but like in a session a half an hour and i'm just like it just blew my mind the uh, the, the potential like but go ahead I, it sounds like it brought something up for you so i want you to share
1: well yeah and and then one and one thing that we do too is there's alpha stems for people who are not interested. So you know, neurofeedback being very active where you're doing the work, a lot of people have had a lot of benefit from using an alpha stem, which is uh, a more passive. what you're literally attack, attaching these two cords to your ears and turning on this machine, and it's sending these call you know helping your alpha brainwaves. But there's no money in this, you know. Um, Lily, or you know Eli Lilly, or all these places do not make money and people getting better by using neurofeedback. So it's not stuff that's covered by insurance. This is all out of pocket type stuff. And, you know, dismiss this quackery and those kinds of things. But like you said, the research is there and the work is amazing. And so when at, when I send people to Alan saying, okay, we've hit a stuck point that talking isn't doing this. And then, you know, he'll do a QEEG and we can look at the results. And I'm like, boom, that makes so much sense. Okay, so you're going to work on that. And I know how to back this up talk therapy wise or hypnotherapy wise. Um, is is seeing like a like now okay that's where the pattern is that's where the problem is that we just don't often see otherwise but yeah there's no money in it it's not covered by insurance can't pres- you know prescribe you a drug for it um, we can't you know manufacture that and and um, make it part of the capitalist economy so it's not something that we hear a lot about and it's expensive to do if you're paying out of pocket
0: yeah uh, i mean all that makes a lot of sense to me the the other thing that sort of he shock, shocked me with was how few times you had to do it he said most of the times he does it in like 20 cycles, and oftentimes he says people don't finish because <laughs> they disappear as so they're feeling better. Like, I'm
1: good, yeah. Um, and I think the younger you are, the the, the quicker it works, too. I've also found that with, with hypnotherapy, um, you know, just younger, more plastic brains can respond even better. So if you're younger, it may not even take that much. Like, when I work with teenagers specifically, like, you know, a hypnotherapy session can really be do a lot of good for their anxiety for months and months and months and they don't have to roll back in for some time. So, uh, yeah, we're not talking about years and years and years of treatment where you're hooked up to this machine and crying about your mother by any means. It, it tends to be, it, it gives your brain what it needs and gets those connections going and builds that brain elasticity. And then you may have some other like talk therapy stuff cause your shit's going to come up and now you got to talk about it, but it'll at least help you get there.
0: I'll talk a little bit about depression. How does depression affect our mind and bodies, and, and what are some effective strategies for overcoming depression?
1: Well, so I I actually have a book out called This Is Your Brain on Depression. It may not be out on Amazon yet. I want to say it actually officially releases in December, but you can get it through my publisher, micro Publishing, right now. But, you know... Anyone who's made it this far into the conversation knows that I really love to geek out about the science of things and understanding depression in that in that same way. Robert Sapolsky, I mentioned him, his book, While Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, he said depression is the clinical inability to appreciate a sunset, which I love. As, you know, we we talk about depression again, like we say, oh, I'm anxious about this, that and the other. It's not the same thing. I'm depressed. And I say, I'm depressed because Whole Foods stopped making my favorite cookie. Bitch, that's not depression. You have a (laughs) sense of entitlement and you're pissed. Not the same thing. (laughs) You know, and depression, of course, is far different, far more insidious. And it really is that lack of connection to the world that you you know, nothing that, you know, so things that you enjoyed are no longer enjoyable. You know, it just, it's this low level in terms of chemistry, hypoactivation of how the body is supposed to work. And, you know, like you just need to get out of bed and take a shower. Like I literally cannot is, you know, an experience of somebody who's got very severe depression. Um, So, yeah, and and I wrote about that a lot and how all of those self-care things and, you know, maintaining the good sleep habits and meds if you take them and good nutrition and all that sort of for people who are predisposed to depressive episodes to begin with have to be super, super careful and really like guard all those things with their lives because that's what they're clinging on to if they can sort of maintain all these balance of these things and really focus on their self-care and we all should be, but especially people with depression, that's what helps you know, manage those experiences when those come on because they have those other tools. So when they get into stress mode with their depression, they're not gonna go in dis- distress because they have the resources they need to deal with the episode. Um, in terms of chemically, and I actually wrote about this as well, it's super interesting, we don't quite know exactly, we know there's something going on between neurotransmitters and the serotonin uptake response, and we know that antidepressants do something to that, but we don't quite actually know how all that works. And so if somebody tells you it works in this way, they're lying because we don't. Um, it's it's one of those sort of mystical things that we know enough to know that there's certain things that can help, but we, Actually, don't have it all broken down, and there is a huge mind-body component to that as well. And you know, our 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 lifestyles and our planet and the things that we put in our mouths and how we move our bodies is so toxic. A lot of those things can be very triggering for depression as well.
0: You mentioned nutrition. I I was at a an event a couple months ago, and this woman had started this functional health clinic, and she talked about how food was the best medicine for the body. And I'm like, whoa. That's a, that's a paradigm shift for me. Um, yeah. Yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit about nutrition?
1: Well, you know, and I was super interested in that and had to do my own body unfucking, dealing with my own stuff over the years. And I and I noticed too, because again, something else that we, you know, never studied in graduate school. But one of the the first thing I noticed was was obviously, you know, there was so many people gaining weight on meds. Antidepressants, antipsychotics, mood stabilizers that um, in in fact, some companies have even been sued for the weight gain associated with their medications. so i I was worried about people because then people were developing type two diabetes and stuff. And I also noticed a lot of little odd things, like so many people on medications for thyroid disorders that also happen to have major depression. And this, it just seemed odd. And this, I mean, it just came from practice. Like, why is like half of the people I'm seeing with depression also have a thyroid disorder? And I was, and you know, and I knew sort of the basics, you know, we need to, you know, stop putting crap in our mouths and we need to move our bodies. And, But I, I was interested in nutrition really as a clinical intervention. So I, because I'm a nerd and that's what nerds do, I studied that, I, um, there was a program in Austin and so I drove myself to Austin once a month for a year and got a postdoc in applied clinical nutrition of using nutrition, food or at least whole food supplements if we couldn't you know, get enough of it otherwise and herbs and stuff to help do a lot of healing and not to necessarily replace all meds. I have people say, hey, look, lady, I'm on Paxil and it saved my life and I'm not trying to take people's Paxil away. But I've also had people on like 10 different medications and that is ridiculous. And all the side effects, you know, concomitant with that and nothing's really quite working and there's so much else we can do by giving the body the nutrition that it needs, by controlling inflammation, um, by, you know, uh, fixing gut permeability so they're actually you know keeping good serotonin production in their gut and there is and I've had and so I incorporate that in my practice It's not to be all end all I do some, see some people that have another therapist and I just do their nutritional work but I've had so many people tell me like that changed my relationship with all this I thought that I was going to have to be on ADHD meds because I couldn't manage my shit but by getting my inflammation under control and you know getting all the sugar out of my system so I wasn't running on sugar and then crashing all the time and having more of a you know a fat based diet made such a difference for me that ADHD didn't magically go away, but I have a different relationship with it. I can handle it. I'm functioning. I am working in this completely different way by treating some of the underlying issues in terms of gut permeability, inflammation, those kinds of things. And then having a brain that's operating on like a fat based diet, so their blood sugar is stable and they're not hey, oh, pony, ooh, hey, birdie, all the time because they they are neurodiverse, but um all they can manage it now without medications, and that's always amazing to hear when something has worked really, really well like that.
0: How does somebody figure out what they're eating right now isn't the right things for them and what they should be eating?
1: And, you know, and it's, it's super individual. And, you know, we go through fad periods. And for example, like ketogenic diet is huge right now. And ketogenic diet is brilliant at treating a lot of different things. It's also very hardcore. It may not be right for everybody. Um, You know, especially if you, you know, you have other medical issues that um, ketogenic diet, doesn't um, contend with. And and that's where seeing somebody like you mentioned, you know, a functional nutritionist, somebody who's looking at nutrition as a form of treatment can be of benefit. Um, When I'm doing nutritional work, I'll look at people's lab work if they have it. And I'm looking at functional levels, not just, oh, well, the lab says, you know, this is out of whack. And so here's your pill. I'll say, hey, these five things, none of them are completely out of whack, but all five are elevated. So I think maybe you are zinc deficient. Most Americans are zinc deficient. 70% of Americans are a magnesium deficient. You know, And so looking at stuff like that, I do system surveys where I can get an idea based on clusters of symptoms. Okay, this is telling me we've got some some adrenal fatigues that's going on here so we need to get your adrenals back online and there's things we can do with adaptogenic herbs for that um we need to do stress management we also need to get your adrenals working um and then looking at what makes sense for their particular issue i'm not one of those people like everybody should do keto or everyone should do paleo or everybody needs to do completely plant-based um, it's very different for everyone based on what their own needs are what Medical stuff they have going on, what medications that they're on that we we, you know, they have to have when we can't take away, um, what stuff they're trying to treat without medications. A lot of times I just do a lot of like sleep hygiene, sleep training. Like we got to get you sleeping properly. Like none of this is going to work. Your body's never going to flush the toxicities out of your system if you don't get some fucking sleep. Um, you know, and starting with the basics of we're going to put less crap in your mouth. We're going to give you some fish oil, you know, we're going to add some calcium so we can get your inflammation under control. And we need to, you know, Stop mainlining donuts. And, so you know, and, and some people need some. There's actually a really good documentary on Netflix right now called The Magic Pill, which is specifically, they don't call it ketogenic diet, but that's what it is. And it's going, you know, going back to a more ancestral type diet, but really without any sugars at all. And they used it with um, people who had type 2 diabetes, and they used it with people who were neurodiverse and showed the benefits of that diet. They weren't magically better. You know, it wasn't like somebody waved a wand, but the, you know, um, kiddos who were autistic were able to speak again, still autistic because, you know, that's not going to go away, but able to live full and healthy and happy lives and communicate and connect with people in a way that they never had before. And to me, that's miraculous enough.
0: Yeah, it's, it's awesome. My, my youngest brother's autistic. So I, I that's sensitive for me and, yeah. and, uh, I mean, I tried to do a vegan diet at one point, and I ended up having a breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: <and laughs> I'd be happy to talk about that. I'm going to probably um, upset some of your plant-powered people. but um, And I have people who, like, you know, I, I truly, truly believe in, in the vegan diet. This is what's right for me, you know, spiritually, more, morally, whatever. That's awesome. Totally supports you. And by the way, since you can't take fish oil, take a blue green algae oil instead. Uh, but generally speaking, it's not necessarily better for the human body um, unless you're going through cancer treatment. Now, there, there is some research that shows like vegan keto specifically is very, very good for people who are going through cancer treatment. But um, veganism in general, I, you know, and my big thing is, and I, I tend, I, I eat probably, I say paleo-ish, because um, I live in San Antonio and I do like tacos, but um, I eat fairly clean, sort of that paleo keto without trying to push into ketosis. Most of us are amino acid non converters which means that we're not gonna get the essential amino acid that we need from plant foods. Protein, yes, aminos, no. And so you probably were one of those people and you weren't getting, unless you were like mainlining a lot of quinoa, you probably weren't getting enough amino acids and your body's like, I'm gonna catch you if you don't give me a hamburger really soon. Um, And there there are ways of treading more lightly on the planet and being mindful but still, including animal proteins in your diet i happen to get my eggs from a guy in san antonio who has backyard chickens so you know these are not you know there's no rooster around you know nobody was harmed in the making these chickens these are happy happy chickens um you know you know chickens produce eggs whether there's a you know a dude chicken around or not it's, it's sort of it's it's you know, just kind of a byproduct of being a chicken. And so even just incorporating eggs, egg yolks have all the essential amino acids that we need. So if you're like, I really just can't stomach, you know, a pork chop. Um, but there are a lot of people that are plant powered plus eggs and they do, you know, healthy local eggs. And I, um, you know, grass fed, um, sustainably, humanely raised um, animals if you if you do include meat in your diet you can still do it in a way that is mindful of the environment and you know our carbon footprint because if you're bringing in and first of all oreos are vegan and they're definitely not healthy delicious but not healthy so vegan is not necessarily healthier and whatever your food choices are in terms of veganism it's not necessarily doing anything for the carbon footprint of the environment if you know your things are being shipped in from another country, that is not better for the environment than the meat that was produced 30 miles down the road for you. There's a really good book called The Ethical Carnivore about a guy who was vegan, had to go back to eating meat for medical reasons, and sort of how he did that. He, you know, got into, uh, you know, deer hunting and those kinds of things, and, and sort of talks about his process of finding what his ethical role is in being a steward of the earth, but still needing to eat meat, um, for his own health. And it was actually his functional practitioner who told him that, which really surprised him. He's like, I thought you of all people would say be vegan. So you're, you're probably going to get angry letters from my plant powered people. I love you. I appreciate you. Um, we're probably going to have to disagree, agree to disagree on that one. <laughs>
0: I mean, I totally support veganism for people. It works for. I just I tried it, and my body on the fifth day, I was shaking. I was slurring my speech. Like, and yeah. I started having all kinds of crazy thoughts. And like, I, I was with ex girlfriend. I'm like, I think I might have to be institutionalized. I'm freaking out, and and yeah. I, I don't know what's happening. And and there was definitely some traumas that were under there. And like, I think that was a callus to release some of them. But it fucked me up for a while. And and um, I talked to a friend of mine who is a former client, and he's a psychologist. And he's like, you know, your brain has a lot of cholesterol and um
1: it runs on it yeah and
0: so he's (laughs) so like he was i mean he doesn't seem to understand the science as well as you do but um he's like you know it's not it's not for everybody and he's like you got to listen to your body and so for somebody who's trying to find the right diet it sounds like from what i hear a combination of two things one find somebody who who does this type of testing or who can who can help you decipher this type of testing to give you guidance and then also probably listen to your body is that
1: yeah, absolutely. You know, if in if this and, and actually the um, His Holiness the Dalai Lama is a really good example who believes, you know, very strongly about you know walking the earth gently and and not hurting other animals is is no longer a vegan himself because his doctor's like, dude, like I'm sorry, but you're gonna have to. So, you know, pay attention to that and. You know find ways to mitigate it. if you're like absolutely not no animal products are going in my body then we need to you know really load up on the quinoa for the essential amino acids we really need to low up on the organic non-gmo soy for the essential amino acids if you can tolerate soy i'm i'm a person that can't um you're going to need blue green algae as a supplement to you know, get the omega threes and stuff, and you're going to have to be super, super mindful and really pay attention to your diet as food, because you're not getting um, the stuff that your body's really needing in terms of essential amino's.
0: You've mentioned movement multiple times, Faith. Can you talk about like how movement is important?
1: Well, and, and first of all, you know, we've made exercise punishment you know, and I remember as a kid, you remember as a kid, like just going out and I'm super old. So you came in when the streetlights came on Um, and you just, you were out and you were playing and you were moving your body because you enjoyed it. And somewhere along the way, you know, we took the fun of movement away and exercise became this punitive thing. Like, well, you know, you had to have two donuts this morning, so you have to do 20 more minutes of cardio now. And is that, you know, took all the fun and joy out of it. And human bodies are are made to move. They're not made to be in the positions that we keep them in all day. I'm a therapist, so I'm sitting there leaning, sitting in a chair all day and leaning forward. So I have empathy neck syndrome and and no movement. And so we need to find ways to bring movement back in, but movement that we really enjoy. We shouldn't be doing things that are punitive and miserable. My son is a boxer and a weightlifter, and he loves that. Like That is his thing. That is better for him than anything else on the planet. Not my thing. I love yoga. I love Qigong. I love hiking. I love swimming. And so doing the things that I know that I'm really going to enjoy doing is gonna give my body that benefit. It does great for the body, it does great for the brain. We need to be moving our bodies, but we need to do it in a way where we're not doing it as punishment for other stuff. And I've never gone to a yoga class and then left after going, well, that was a waste of my hour. I can't believe I did that. (laughs) You know, whenever we go do it, you're like, I'm so glad I got my fat lazy ass off the sofa and went, I feel better, you know? And so we need, you know, to, to focus on it from that domain versus, you know, burning calories or anything else. And even just, I love going hiking with my best friend. And we can just, you know, vent about whatever we're venting about and stomp around out in the woods. And so I get to spend time with him and, you know, and be moving my body at the same time. You know, I'm one of those people that'll park further away. I'll take the stairs instead of the elevator. I'm always trying to find ways to incorporate more movement in my day, you know, get up and, you know, do a little yoga home practice and, and stretch my little middle-aged body before, um, I head off for coffee, that kind of stuff.
0: Two things. Um, can you explain what Qigong is for people who are unaware of it? I I think, and then the second thing is like, what's physiologically happening in our body that causes us to feel better after we move?
1: Um, so Qigong is a form of very mindful movement. People are maybe more, um, know more about like Tai Chi, for example, Qigong is one like yoga that has been, um, actually turned into an evidence-based practice to incorporate somatic movement into healing. So there's, you know, medical Qigong for practitioners who are already doing somatic type work, for example, and it's using those very mindful sort of Beautiful movements that you see a lot of times in Eastern martial arts But if you notice those are types of practices that are very slow very mindful You're very very aware of your body in space and time Um, And you you know, you're stretching muscles out Um, You you are definitely building muscle tone and stuff, but it's not pumping iron or hardcore cardio type exercise it's really movement in the body. Um, and your second question is what what what's going on with the body with in the brain with exercise? Yep. Um, well, we know that it has a direct effect on the brain. There's like really great TED talks and stuff out there about how exercise impacts the brain has a very calming response. We know that it helps get that stuff out. Um, so many people tell me, you know, people who really struggle with anger, anxiety, things like that, that going and working out We'll kind of wear them out. It'll flush out those chemicals. So we, you know, have that response of getting that stuff out of our nervous system. And then again, it, it activates all the fascia and gets all of those electrical charges going out through our body. So the whole, I call it afferent messaging. So I, I don't call it, everybody calls it afferent messaging, but afferent messaging is the, the term for the, the messages that the body sends back to the brain. And that's what exercise is doing. So rather than the brain saying, Hey, that's hot. Move your hand. It's the body saying, "Hey, we're moving. Release the trauma." And, and so, either the body is sending messages back to the brain, just as the brain is sending messages to the body.
0: How how do you spell that afferent? A F F E R A N T. Afferent. Yeah. Okay.
1: Afferent. Um, there, go yeah,
0: ahead. there's
1: a a really cool. Um, He's an MD, you know, board certified surgeon who also happens to be a yoga teacher. And he writes a lot about that because you can, you know, he's, you know, has seen both sides of it again, Melting Western and Eastern Practice, and talks about yoga specifically as being, and he, he's wrote like the, the key poses of yoga and the key muscles of yoga. Um, and it's, a, again, talking about like that effort messaging, going back to Peter Levine's work and all that somatic experiencing. It's, it's all one big tiny wimey wibbly-wobbly ball of stuff.
0: Who was that yoga teacher that you were
1: talking um, um, Let me pull it up while we're talking about it because it, it escapes me. I haven't had my coffee yet.
0: <laughs> the, the other thing I want to ask you, you mentioned there's a couple of really really Good TED Talks. Do you know? Were you thinking of anything specific?
1: Um, I have seen several. Ray Long, um, his name is Ray Long. He's written The Key Poses, uh, Key Muscles of Yoga and The Key Poses of Yoga, and he's really talking about that specifically. Um, and his, you know, sort of developed his, there's you know, many schools of yoga, but you know, developed his own way of doing it based on his understanding of the body as a surgeon and stuff, which is really cool. I have both the books, they're so really good. Um, Second question is: Do I am I thinking of anything specific? I've seen several, um, and I did a TED Talk a few years ago, and I, I just kind of you know love them. You know those, those chunks of information in you know five, 10, 15 minutes. But you know if you just look at like TED Talks, exercise in the body, you'll find a lot of really cool stuff up there about you know what's lighting up in the brain, and you know if you're trying to build up motivation to exercise and, and, and going and seeing some of that. But even just like, why don't you just move your body because it's fun is a, is a very, and and do it because you like it, you know, and, and knowing all the other science stuff is really cool. But when it comes down to it, we should do things because they feel good.
0: You mentioned mindfulness multiple times. Can you yeah. talk about that?
1: Absolutely, so I tell people um, You can meditate and never be mindful and you can be mindful and never have a meditation practice mindfulness is just being in the present moment and Paying attention to everything that's going on in that moment because we don't I um, We're driving home, you know, taking the bus home, whatever we're doing, and we're thinking about, oh shit, I forgot to buy cat food. Do I have enough toilet paper? What am I gonna cook for dinner? Maybe I should stop and get something. And we're doing all these other things rather than being in the present moment. And all mindfulness is doing is bringing us back to the present moment. This is all the stuff that I'm thinking. This is all the stuff that I'm feeling. This is what's going on with my body. This is what I'm feeling on my skin. This is what I'm smelling. This is what I'm tasting. And just being in the moment of that is a very grounding experience, and it helps us figure our shit out. I call it cockroach hunting. Once you start kind of doing some kind of mindfulness practice and you realize the shit that you say to yourself, you're gonna have, oh, okay, so that's what's going on. Because if you turn on the light in the kitchen and you see a cockroach, you know that there's like 200 more. And you're like, so if you find one cockroach, you're like, shit, I got fucking cockroaches everywhere that I had not known were here. And so mindfulness helps us find that first cockroach so we can start the cockroach eradication process. Of I say fucked up shit to myself. Why, why do I say that to myself? Well, what was that about? Like, And we don't even realize the negative self-talk and the things that we're doing until we start being mindful of it. And then having a, you know, a different relationship, having compassion for our experience, learning to let those thoughts go, how to sit with the emotion and let it go. When I started mindful meditation as a formal practice 10 some years ago, my body was so resistant to being in the moment my nose would run. Like my meditation instructor had to keep tissues by me because my nose would run so I could, you know, get off the cushion and go blow my nose. And so she started keeping meditation, uh, uh tissues right there in the room i would start singing in my head i'm henry the eighth i am over and over and over in my head i mean anything to not pay attention to my own experience Um, and mindful meditation is just using an anchor to go back to um, I I studied the Shambhala tradition and practice mindful meditation from the Shambhala tradition and it's just using the breath as the anchor because your mind is going to wander and you go, oh, yep, thinking and then you go back to the breath and go back to the present moment and that kind of training gives us a different relationship with ourselves, with our bodies, with our minds, a different relationship with the world around us, it's it's so difficult to do, and if I found it, an easier way to do it, I would be a millionaire, but it's just getting in there and doing the hard grunt work of being back at home in ourselves is is the only way i found to be a better human being on the planet, and for me, being mindful and actually incorporating formal practice of mindfulness meditation and that has been a big part of me being a better human being.
0: How long should somebody meditate for to get, actually get results, how frequently?
1: I, well, you need to do what you can tolerate. And if it's something brand new to you, it's gonna feel very, very uncomfortable. I mean, if you go to a place where they, where they do open sits, um, you know, sits are usually gonna be about an hour, but it's not like, you know, you have magical results at 93 minutes. Um, So if you only meditate seven, you're not going to get anything out of it. Anytime we can check in with ourselves and do more of that is a good thing. That's why there's so many apps now for that where people, you know, will do... You know uh, just a few minutes of mindfulness meditation anything is definitely better than nothing and you don't have to go you know do a week-long meditation retreat where you're sitting for eight hours a day and then eating gruel
0: um
1: though you might find it a benefit to do but i will do um i will sit in my car before i walk into the house after being at work of just having a moment of mindful meditation uh, disconnecting from work and being able to hold space for people and their pain and all the work that we were doing all day before I go in the house to be home with my family is I will just do two or three minutes just being in the car of resetting myself so I can go be in the present moment rather than carry work in with me to the house. So that's an example of literally two to three minutes being a very life-changing part of my routine.
0: I think about myself and I mean, I, I meditate just about every day and I think about other periods in my life where I'd use the noise around me to constantly suppress things but also the noise inhibited me from addressing them and and when I say that it means like there's a moment of quiet and so then I check Facebook or I check Instagram or I read the news for like the 30th time (laughs) that day or I um but I also found that like my phone notifications were popping up like constantly my uh, email was dinging me like it felt like the entire world was yelling at me and what I had to start doing first was cut those things off. I would turn them off just every time I became aware of another notification that wasn't serving me, I would, I would turn them off and then I would start to create space. And then meditation was another form of that. And it's just, I feel like it's had an immense, uh, impact on my ability to get comfortable with space and then begin to get more comfortable with my emotions. Absolutely. And, um, I have a couple other questions. I know we've gone, this is a lot longer than you probably expected, but you're just oh, such an fine. awesome guest. Um, when somebody has anger or freakouts or triggers, what can they do to manage those better?
1: Well, and actually, the, the next book, thank you so much. It's like I paid you to say that. Um, the next book that I'm coming out with is specifically on coping skills and Unfuck Your Brain, you know, the, the, the freakouts, triggers, all that stuff has a lot of cool techniques. Um, the one thing that I wanted to do was really talk about coping, not from like a theoretical orientation, like, hey, I'm a CBT therapist, so these are the coping skills we use, but from understanding how the brain and body work and finding ways that, so people can find ways that work specifically well for them. Um, so that book, I think Microcosm is going to be launching it around Thanksgiving when we all need better coping skills. Uh <laughs> holidays are so much fun. And, um, and so that's going to be available. And basically, when they kick started, it's meaning you're getting it pre order, like you're getting it fresh off the printer before it's even released. But I, I went into like, these are all the different types of coping skills that are out there based on what your specific needs are. And so I say with coping skills, is like, try stuff on. And if it doesn't work for you, cool, like you said, uh, doing a having a meditation practice has been life-changing for you. It has been for me. It may not be for everybody uh, You know, so finding stuff, you know, some people do really well with you know a weighted blanket or you know holding ice in their hand or um, you know Using like the Pomodoro technique to sort of, you know, manage everything they have to get done in the day Um, And so I did a whole book about like here's a bunch of different techniques and how they work based on how the you know The body and brain work. So if people like I tried my coping skills didn't help fuck off Then you know, it's not that you failed at coping It's that we just hadn't found the skill that works for you. And so we have to find something that matches how you perceive the world and what makes you feel better when you're upset. Some people exercise feels awful when they're depressed. For some people it's the, the best medicine that they can get. Um, so it's very unique and we just have to try stuff until we find our combination. My son's is, you know, involves a lot of sports. Um, mine involves pedicures. He is oddly just. Dis- he is oddly disinterested in pedicures, uh, so you know. It, everybody has a different thing. My husband tried a, a pedicure and he was all hot water burn baby, and he loved it. And that's now it's one of his. You know. So everybody has you know you know be open and willing to try stuff. um My son actually loves yoga, and he is like this huge buff dude. My right? my son is like a security guard at a hospital in California. Like he you know. Carries an automatic weapon on helicopters to protect doctors like he's that guy, but he he found that he loved yoga Um, He you know liked being able to have more of of a quiet meditative contemplative Practice and he found that it made him a better boxer and stuff too because he he had more flexibility and stuff after doing it So you might surprise yourself by finding out that you like something that you wouldn't think that you'd like And if something doesn't work for you doesn't work for you
0: Awesome I mean, you've earned my trust. I will be order, pre-ordering the book as soon as I get off this uh, this call. Um, are any advice for people who are dealing with difficult people or situations?
1: You know, and I, my my mom, um, my mom passed recently, but I remember her, it's one of the things, of all the things that she told me over my exit, I have held on to and used over and over and over again is people can fuck you over, but they can't fuck you up. That's on you. Yeah. Um, and I must have been like 17, 18, 19. She said that I was, you know, supremely butthurt by something somebody had done to me, you know, as an undergrad or whatever. And like, there's like so much fundamental truth in that. And you know, how we deal with other people is, you know, we first of all had to make sure that we are setting good boundaries and that our boundaries are not permeable in that domain. And that How much power are we giving people over ourselves in this process? You know, especially for those of us who are, and I understand like there's people you're fucking stuck with, you know, there's people that you work with that aren't going away, unfortunately, until they drop dead of a heart attack, you're stuck with them forever. But how you respond to them and and let that go is what's going to have more impact because, you know, a shitty human being is going to be a shitty human being. And you're not going to be necessarily be able to have a rational conversation with them about that. Sometimes you can. But if you're talking about people who are just truly toxic, it's about am I going to let this person fuck me up just because they fucked me over Um, is is a completely different conversation to have with yourself. I say there's like five people in the world who have a say in my identity and self-worth. There's five people, if they tell me something about me, that they're doing it because they love me, they know me, it's coming from a good place. And so if they say, girl, you're being a bitch, they're right. <laughs> um, and everybody else, their opinion of me, none of my business.
0: This sort of came up, I was thinking about um, the idea of connection. And I, I was at this dinner last night and the way that the dinner is structured is you go to someone's house, there's a, a small group of people uh, between like, eight and 15, I've gone to a few of them now. Only one person speaks at a time. You can only, uh, if you want something, you have to ask the person next to you to serve you. So there's some connection there. The fact that one person's speaking, only everybody is, has to listen and everybody's looking at each other. There's like all the phones, everything's put away. And a lot of people are coming in with their own shit and people opened up in a deep way. There's a container where like, you're not supposed to talk about anything that happens at the dinner, outside the dinner. And so you can talk about your own story, but not share other people's story unless that you have permission. But this people walked away from that dinner. And every time I've gone to one of these dinners with a deep sense of uh, connection. And for me, they asked, were there any words that that sort of came up at the end of the dinner? And for me, it was family, even though this was like mostly a group of strangers, this sort of deep connection. And I'm curious for somebody who sort of works in the field where they're, they're helping people to heal themselves. I'm assuming part of that is is connection and what do you think makes great connection?
1: Well and I'm a relationally trained therapist meaning you know my theoretical orientation is relational cultural theory meaning that we get better in connection I mean you know to, to keep it super simple that healthy relationships and healthy interactions is the primary component to healing. And so that's what we need. So for people who have, you know, toxic families, families that say, you know, that, you know, disregard who they are fundamentally as a human being is, we you know, we have to seek out and find our families of choice. We have to find our people or, and, and you mentioned like earlier, how you thought that you had to handle everything on your own. If there was a problem, you were just supposed to fix it. And that was one of the things that, you know, early psychology really pushed for, this idea that we should be sort of be unto ourselves and self actualized And that's not true at all. And the brain science backs it up. And it wasn't until the 70s, sort of the feminist theories came in and said, no, we are caretakers of relationship and we need connection. And that's what makes, and that's what therapy is. It's modeling this, this healthier relationship. And there's tips and there's tricks and You know somebody who has training and perspective but essentially it's like this modeling of what healthy relationships and communication and things can look like so you can then bring that forward into other domains of your life and so we're all seeking that and it's tough too as we get older to find those people and make those kinds of friends it's so easy and intuitive when we're in like school and things and we're all together and so i really encourage people who are out there trying to make those connections to do things that would be interesting to you anyway. Like if there's something you're really passionate about volunteering for some cause or something, go do that. So even if you don't meet anyone cool, at least you felt like that was a good use of your time. Dogs got walked, you know, people got registered to vote, you know, whatever it was. And, you know, and if there's, you know, stuff you like to do like you're super into gaming you know join a, a gamers group or if you're into running joining the rubber runners club but like find the stuff that you like to do anyway and then the connections are going to come through that because you're already to meet people you have something to talk about and you're going to meet more and more people that are like you if you're doing those kinds of things you know versus just going to a bar or whatever
0: you mentioned that in therapy, you're modeling healthy relationships. What What do you think the parts of that are that you're modeling? Of
1: of, of respect, of you know, clear communication, of boundaries. People taking I've kind of all the stuff we've been talking about. People taking responsibility for their own reactions, but also owning the impact that we have on the people around us. Noticing what's going on and communicating that. Um, thinking about you know, what our goals are in relationship and life and starting to live those experiences i i say you can you can be happy or you can have purpose and meaning you're not going to get both so do you want a life of purpose and meaning or do you just want to be happy? Because if you want a life of purpose and meaning, there's going to be a lot of discomfort to lean into in the process. You know, and figuring out what that's, what. that's what's your purpose and meaning, you know, what's that going to be for you? And then, you know, living with the discomfort of achieving that or striving for it.
0: You're talking about all the obstacles that come up along the way when you're trying. Yeah. yeah.
1: Might might try to do so because you're not gonna be happy if if you know your intent is to change the world Then you're gonna be unhappy a lot of times But if your focus is like I've got some world-changing shit to do here and that's what the meaning of my life is you know leaning into that and you know being focused on that and you know and doing the self-care and attending to your important relationships and stuff in, in the process but Like, this is where the unhappiness is coming from because this is uncomfortable growth work. Anybody else who, you know, listening who does bodybuilding type stuff knows that there's a certain amount of stress you have to put on the muscle, a certain amount of breakdown that you have to do in order to get the growth. And that's what we're, you know, doing with our emotional lives all the time.
0: Uh, Besides everything that we've discussed, uh, any other ways that people can improve their interactions and bring their best selves to the table?
1: Um, I think, I mean, we've, we've talked about probably all of them. I always say I only have like three tricks. So if we go through all three, I'm, I'm done. I don't have anything else for you, but just, um, some of the stuff that we talked about is just really looking at who, who are you in the grand picture and is this action getting you there? You know, are you going to be proud of this or embarrassed in five years? Does this align with who you are? Is this what your gut is telling you to do? Or is this all kind of external messages saying you should XYZ, you know, real men don't cry, you know, like, well, I am a real man, and I cry, or whatever it is, you know, of really like being authentic to who you really are. And that's the thing that I love most about Buddhism, which I I wish that we could take into all kinds of, you know, all kinds of practice, not, you know, not just spirituality, religion, but just life in general, is we weren't born fundamentally broken, and we don't need something to fix us. We were born fundamentally good and pure and whole. And our job is to get back to that. And so this idea that you were somehow broken and need to be fixed, I want to get rid of that. And I want to go back to who we know ourselves to really be at the core. And that's what we need to be reconnecting to.
0: Dr. Faith Harper, this has been incredible. I can see why you're or hear or feel why you're such an incredible healer. Uh, you have a beautiful, oh, beautiful mind. Um, Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been a pleasure. And if you're listening and you want to find more about Dr. Harper and everything that she's done, her books, her work, I'm going to post some links on the Craft of Christmas website and within the description of this podcast so that you can find out about her more easily. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me.
1: Thank you for letting me ramble on and hopefully nobody fell asleep and they're you know, drooling as they're listening to this now while we were geeking out about brain science. I had a lot of fun today.
0: Uh, you were awesome. <laughs> it's dating coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I gotta do to get them On the show for you also don't hesitate to follow the podcast on soundcloud and itunes and stitcher you can also give us a shout out through social media facebook twitter share it with your friends and lastly go to the craft christmas website and create an account there you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly so thank you again for taking time to listen you will hear again from me soon